the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome today, Dr. Alex Bitzer. Dr. Bitzer is a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who practices sports medicine with a subspecialty focus in shoulder and elbow. Welcome back, Dr. Bitzer, talking about FAI. Thank you very much, Sam. It's great to be here. Let's talk about management of patients with FAI. You mentioned in your presentation to us about anti-inflammatories, activity modifications, PT. How does PT work? How does PT fit into this, I should say? How does PT work for this? And what are your next steps if you do the conservative treatments and it doesn't work? Physical therapy is key to patients with FAI, and this is whether they end up receiving surgery or not. And there are a few patients that certainly can be treated successfully with just physical therapy and uh, just activity modifications. Having FAI or having a labral tear does not automatically buy you a surgery every single time because you have to sort of weigh the risks and benefits. And you also have to say, well, is this someone who's going to be able to cope despite having a labral tear and some of these morphological issues that predispose them to having some inflammation in their hip when they're doing too much. And so physical therapy is really geared towards strengthening the core, strengthening the posterior chain of the, of the pelvis, uh, the anterior chain as well, and really trying to maximize the range of motion of the hip that is tolerable. That maximizes basically how loose the joint can be from a tendinous and ligamentous standpoint. Obviously, if there's a foundation problem with the bone, uh, you won't be able to change that with physical therapy, but certainly you will be able to still get increased range of motion if some of those other structures, especially the dynamic structures around the hip, are too tight. And so that's a common thing that a lot of people, whether they have FAI or not, uh, tend to struggle with, which is you know either a tight IT band, tight abductors, tight adductors, really improving the mechanics of these uh, dynamic structures about the hip joint can really help A, loosen up the joint, but B, also make it stronger so that uh, people use it more. And when you use it more, it hurts less. And then you get it stronger and then it hurts less. And then, you know, you basically go into a positive feedback loop and, and hopefully one can stay there. Finally, the other thing that I've found to be pretty helpful with physical therapy is that as you get the hip girdle stronger, uh, the pelvis itself becomes more balanced. And so there's actually a few videos out there showing patients walking and running before physical therapy and after physical therapy. And you'll actually see a marked improvement in the balance of the pelvis as the patients run. And so it'll help the pelvis not droop and not collapse into too much retroversion or a position that might decrease, again, one's range of motion that uh, is required to do whatever activity you're trying to get to. So pelvic balance is, is huge, I think, with uh, physical therapy and getting people uh, with FAI to maybe be able to cope and not require anything down the road. How long would you anticipate PT to start showing some benefit? I think most patients should do at least six weeks. Finding the right balance as to what is too much and what is too little is always somewhat tricky. Most of us say go twice a week because that's enough to sort of stay in the game and stay involved and really see the benefits of physical therapy without necessarily exacerbating symptoms. Now, if there are patients that say, 
you know, it, it's just too much. I, I'm not even able to get to my second appointment of the week because I'm still so sore from the first one. Then maybe backing off and just going to once a week might be more beneficial. Conversely, if there's a patient that says, you know, I, I, I'm, I did two, I could do three and every single one that I do makes me feel better and I'm stronger and I'm able to do more, then you could bump it up to three. But I think two in general tends to be a, a sweet spot. Usually most patients, the first few weeks, they'll see some mild improvements, but really I think it's really the six to 12 week mark that most patients are going to really start seeing a benefit in terms of how much more balanced their hip is feeling and their core and their pelvis we'll start seeing whether, you know, physical therapy and, and activity modification is going to be able to get them through their hip issue. Right. So it's going to take some time. Basically, they might show a little bit of improvement, but it's going to take some time. So you got to give them a good course. And they're going to have to give it a good try. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think most people won't even operate on someone if, unless they've really given it a good try. And that's the part where it becomes kind of important to really listen to your patient. Because if you just say, you know, you just look at the checkbox and say, have you tried PT before? And you just look at the checkbox and it's been said, yes, you know, and they're still not better. Sometimes it's easy to just say, well, that didn't work. Let's move on to this. Uh, but many times it requires a little bit of probing of the patient to see exactly what they've done in physical therapy too, because they're not all created equal, not only from a therapist standpoint, but also from a patient standpoint. And many times patients will candidly tell you, yeah, you know what? I, I kind of, went once, I went twice, I did a few things here and there, it wasn't my thing. And, and so those are patients that do require a little bit more time in the office and, and sometimes counseling them will, will you know, take a little bit, but it can be really beneficial when you kind of outline you know, that giving it a real try is important, not only because they might actually receive benefit from it and be able to avoid something else and they end up doing great, but also uh, so that they know that they gave it a fair try um, because you would hate to, and I tell this to patients all the time, you would hate to jump to the next treatment option without knowing that the previous one could have helped you just as much, if not more. Dr. Bitzer, what about injections and what's your kind of algorithm in thinking about that? I think when patients have pretty much shown to have intraarticular pathology, both on their exam, their history, uh, their imaging, then, you know, if, if they're not able to get over the hump with physical therapy and they're not able to be where they need to be with just activity modification, non-steroidal medicines, then I think a cortisone injection is helpful, mostly for a, from a diagnostic standpoint, because if you give someone a cortisone injection, then typically, you know, there's an anesthetic that's delivered at the same time. And you give that to them in the office and all of a sudden their symptoms have gone completely away. You actually have them squat, do a deep squat that they haven't been able to do for years. And they say, wow, I don't feel anything. Then that's, that's powerful from a diagnostic standpoint. Conversely, it's also powerful from a therapeutic standpoint because now they're not having pain and their symptoms are much better. And many times these can last a few months and patients will be very happy and pleased. Another thing that I found to be pretty helpful with cortisone injections to the hip is that if someone's having too many symptoms in order to participate with physical therapy appropriately, then a cortisone injection can sometimes calm down the symptoms enough so that, again, they can work on those exercises that will get their whole hip girdle stronger and more loose and just better. And by the time the cortisone wears off, their hip is now in a much better place. And so a common question I, I get is, well, this is only a temporary thing. It's only a Band-Aid. 
And I say, yes, that's true to some degree, but A, it's going to help us from a diagnostic standpoint, but B, let's take your hip where it is right now. And you're having so much symptoms that you can't really participate in anything that's going to make it better from just a strengthening and stretching standpoint. Now, let's go ahead and give you an injection. We reset the pain level in your hip, and now you're able to participate and get it stronger and better. And so guess what? When that cortisone wears off, because you're right, it inevitably will, your hip is now in a much better spot and place than it was without resetting that button. And I think patients understand that. And they say, well, that, that's a good way to take advantage of a cortisone injection, not only to get some relief, but also make my, you know, work on, on getting my exercises in. Those will all be helpful. And then finally, uh, the last thing that a cortisone injection is helpful for is, again, that pain relief is there. It's great. It was there for three months. Now it's gone. Now I'm miserable again. The therapy wasn't good enough. You know, there's something obviously intraarticularly that's wrong that was better with the cortisone injection. And then you say, well, I think you probably benefit from having a hip arthroscopy to go ahead and fix your labral tear and get rid of the FAI, the bony morphology that's causing you uh, impingement and pain. You did the injection, it didn't work, they're still having pain. What is the surgery to manage FAI, and what are some of the postoperative courses that you've seen? The majority of the surgeries to address uh, FAI uh, are done arthroscopically nowadays. You know, they actually used to do some of these open, and in fact, some places still do them open, but the morbidity with an open surgical dislocation and, and the fact that people are training much more in, in arthroscopic techniques these days have made it such that the majority of these, um, especially in the United States, are being done arthroscopically right now. And so typically, because of FAI, labral tears are very commonly seen with FAI. So typically, an arthroscopic procedure will be done, usually with either three or four portals. Uh, everything's done with a camera, of course. The procedure usually begins uh, by focusing on the central compartment. And so that's where the socket and the ball is. That's where you can see the cartilage. That's where you can see the labrum. And most people who have FAI and are symptomatic will have these labral tears that will need to be repaired. And so there's also a lot of information coming out about different types of labral techniques, um, how to fix the labrum, what kind of stitch configuration to, to use, which might be a little bit beyond the podcast for today, but I'm happy to discuss at any other point. But typically the labrum will be repaired if it's repairable. Sometimes in the past, people used to debride the labrum if uh, it did not appear to be repairable. And this did have some fairly positive uh, outcomes in terms of return to sport and pain relief. But now if you compare debridements compared to uh, repairs, uh, repairs certainly do better. And so that is kind of the, the standard, the gold standard that most folks are doing today. There is the occasion where if there is not uh, enough labral tissue to repair, where folks are either doing a reconstruction uh, which requires a, a graft, um, which a lot of people are using fasciolata, uh, autograft or allograft, or a, a tibialis anterior. And so that's one option. Or the other option, which is now slowly catching on a little bit more, is augmentating the labrum. So leaving what's there, not taking it off to just put a graft on, but leaving what's there natively, which again will preserve some of those nociceptive fibers and also those proprioceptive fibers that are there in the native labrum. And you're just going to add more labrum to that to again help with stability and suction of the hip joint. And so that's typically done on, in the first part of the, uh, the procedure. After that central compartment has been appropriately dealt with, 
uh, that's when, and this is usually the uh, part of the procedure where the uh, legs are in traction so that you, know, you can actually distract across the joint, get into that central compartment and do this work. Afterwards, usually the traction is let off and then uh, people uh, go into the peripheral compartments. This is gonna be focusing now on the cam lesion. Um, so really looking at the femoral neck down the shaft of the, of the neck, identifying where that excess bone is and then go ahead and removing it. That will be uh, that portion of it. And then finally, you know, as you're accessing the joint and as you're accessing this cam lesion, you also have to make some small cuts in the capsules. And this is another point of contention where different people are making different types of capsular cuts in order to gain access to these compartments. And so again, a little bit beyond the scope, but uh, at this point, after the bony resection has been done, most uh, people are closing the capsule at this point to help with any micro instability that might result from, from the uh, procedure. I also wanted to know typical post-op courses. What's your experience with your patients in their post-op course? And I know it varies from, you know, what all they had done, but how do they do? Patients post-operatively, uh, we're, we're pretty conservative with them early on, especially if you've taken off a large bony lesion. So what we end up doing is we put patients on crutches actually for two weeks and we make them partial weight bearing 50% for two weeks. And then after two weeks is actually when we see them in the clinic for their post-op and just make sure that they're doing okay, their incisions are healed up nicely, et cetera. At that point, at the two-week mark, we actually start saying, well, start dropping one crutch and then go start with the other crutch and increase your, your weight bearing as you can tolerate and so that is done really over the next week after that. And so they're now at about week three at this point, and they've dropped their crutches, they're fully weight-bearing, and they're, they're getting going with physical therapy. Physical therapy starts off a little bit slow as well. And the main reason that we're starting off a little bit slow with physical therapy is because we don't want to disrupt the capsule at this point. So again, most people are, are closing the capsule at this point at the end of the procedure. And so the things that really stress your capsular closure are aggressive external rotation and extension. We also don't want to have them do hyperflexion because again, that's going to really stress that repair that it's really going to bring that femur close to the acetabulum. And last time it was where we've done the labor repair, of course. So um, minimizing extremes of motion are, are important, primarily extension, flexion, and external rotation. But internal rotation is usually uh, not too big of an issue and that, you know, people start getting that back fairly quickly. And so they're going to physical therapy about twice a week. The therapists have our protocol that basically says what they can and cannot do. Again, sort of staying away from extremes of motion, but also starting to work on some of the pararticular musculature to, to help with balance and, and help with rehabilitation. Dr. Bitzer, you had mentioned in your presentation about some video that shows the suction effect on the acetabular labrum. Can we access that? And then also, are there any other resources uh, that our listeners might have available where they can read more about this? Absolutely. Actually, um, you know, I mentioned it and uh, I looked it up on my computer and I have the file here. If you'd like me to share that with you, it's actually a very interesting video. So the video has an intact labrum, so nothing has happened to the labrum, and it just shows a machine sort of providing a distraction force across the hip joint, and, you know, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, and then you see a big pop, and so that's that suction seal being broken. And then after that, there's uh, a defect that's cut into the labrum, and, you know, with that 
labral defect, you can basically, there's no suction effect and you can just see the ball coming in and out of socket with really minimal force applied across it. And then after that, uh, there's, as part of the same video, there's a reconstruction that's done. So that labrum that was cut out, there's another graft that's placed there and sutured onto the acetabulum as a labral reconstruction. And then again, that suction seal is uh, improved and you can see sort of, again, more distraction forces needed in order to separate the ball from the socket. So it's a very uh, interesting visual message that comes across. And of course, there's a ton of studies that have been done myomechanically showing the difference between a native labrum, a torn labrum, a torn labrum that's been repaired, and then again, a torn labrum that has been um, augmented or reconstructed, showing varying degrees of stability. And again, this uh, suction seal effect. So yeah, I'd be happy to share that video with you. In terms of uh, other resources, there's great resources on the AOS website that are very helpful in terms of getting more information about FAI. Uh, there's also a, a lot of information on AOSSM, which is a you know the uh, the sports medicine um, side of uh, of or, or organization um, or big subgroup organization uh, within orthopedics. And so those are both really good websites, both AAOS or AOSSM. And then if you go to those uh, websites, there's actually tutorials, there's brochures, there's all sorts of pamphlets and information about FAI, uh, what it is, um, who treats it. And then uh, you can even find studies if you want to um, dive that deep into it, because a lot of these uh, websites are associated with journals uh, of their own, um, which which can they, uh, sort of point you in the right direction. Great stuff, Dr. Bitzer. Thanks for your time. No problem. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining the Ortho PAC podcast. Dr. Bitzer recently gave us a presentation on FAI at our Charlotte meeting. This will be part of a Category 1 CME package soon that you can purchase on the PAOS CME Learning Center. AAPA members may also access this content through the AAPA CME Central.